The following conversation is an audible archive recorded with Ben Walker, February 28th, 2017. Okay, so what I want to do is I want to just capture your life story. Yeah. From your earliest memory up until today or now and just I'll ask you a question and you'll start talking and then I'll ask you another question or segue into something different. I, I may want to know more information about something you're talking about or I may ask you to talk about something affiliated with that. So I'll just be basically listening and responding uh, to you. Yeah, but you see a topic like spirituality, I cannot come up, boom, already with an answer. You will need to guide me, so to speak. Sure. I will, I will speak and you can cut what you want or add what you want. Or Spirituality is not an easy thing f- for me to speak about. Because sometimes I do feel spiritual and, and, and sometimes I don't. And some, sometimes in a synagogue, you, you stand up, you sit down and you read words. And I don't always feel spiritual at that time. It, it depends. I, I may go and, and sing the Shema in the woods with a bunch of kids, and I feel very spiritual, uh-huh. you see? So I, I don't know whether we want to start there. That's, yeah, let's, that's, not, let's start at the beginning. Um, let me get your, whatever your, you say. your full I'm name, a, your date okay. that you were born, and your earliest memory. Okay. Uh, I'm called now Ben Walker. My original name was Benjamin in Hebrew, Binyamin. I uh, was named after my grandfather, and uh, our name was spelled differently. It was pronounced differently. It was it's Germanic. Uh, my ancestors came from Austria. Uh, they, the, the name was W-A-L-Z-E-R, which is pronounced Walzer, one who waltzes. And I have an uncle that came to this country in 1920s and he changed the Z to a K so when I came to this country in 1956 uh, he asked me if I would do the same and I agreed instead of Germanic we anglicized the Z to a K and it became Walker officially on the passport I'm Benjamin Walker but everywhere else it's Ben Walker my earliest memory I was the first grandson of the Zimmer, a Z-I-M-M-E-R family that had a big farm in, in Bukovina. It's a region of Romania, northeast, near the, near the border with Ukraine. And I was the first uh, grandson, and so as I told you, I had five uncles and one aunt, and and being the first is very special, and they had a wonderful time, and we spent more more time on that farm, in my grandfather's farm, than I spent in my house, which was nearby, not far from there, another town, and uh, we went uh, fishing and horseback riding and boating and walking in the woods and hiking, and it was a wonderful life. What did your father do? Uh, my father uh, uh, was a merchant. He had a dry goods store. 
and uh, I don't think he was very successful with it. But in a little shtetl, uh, it was uh, he did make a, a good living, but he also loved a synagogue. He had a good voice, so um, he was kind of like a, a cantorial person in that synagogue in a little town. And your mom? My mother was a, a housewife. She took care of us. We had I had another sister, and she was basically a homemaker. When you think about your parents, what type of a feeling do you get? Well, we were very close family. There was no different religions like we have here: Orthodox, Reform, Conservative. There is only one conservative synagogue. I mean, Orthodox synagogue. And there was one little shul, and that was it. I went, started Cheder in a one-room school where I still remember when I was five years old, they make a big ceremony that you started school. In, in the one-room school where you learn the Hebrew alphabet, my mother prepared some cakes and invited a whole bunch of people. And uh, I loved my mother very much. My dad, I didn't get to know him well because uh, I think he was very wonderful but he died too soon he died in 1942 when I was about seven years old in the in the camp in the camp that uh, in Transnistria which is not spoken about much most people know about Auschwitz Treblinka and those Dachau, those camps, but there are so many, many camps that you probably never heard of, uh, not talked about, because right after the war, it, it just disappeared. It was a camp which was either erased as a camp or plowed over, mass graves and what have you. But there were many people who died in that, those camps in southwestern Ukraine, 250,000 people died there, but nothing is spoken about because the Soviet Union didn't want to make it special that the Jews suffered more than their citizens. That's why you have in Auschwitz, for example, you have the evidence, the crematorium. Everything was there. It's left. You can go and visit and see it and so on, but there isn't much you can go to, to see in Kiev or Transnistria, or in Odessa, where 80,000 Jews were massacred, or in Kiev, where you have 23,000 Jews were um, shot in one valley called Babi Yar. You don't hear much about it because there's, the evidence was erased by the Soviet Union. They didn't want to make a deal. They wanted to show that all the nationalities suffered. And including Jews, but you know the Soviet is one people, and not Jews and Russian, Ukrainians, and so on. They wanted to integrate the whole thing, and this was the Great Patriotic War, and uh, they wanted uh, to kind of not bring up the Holocaust. Only after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, now researchers are beginning to. Uh, find out about the massacres that were in different different towns and these massacres were not necessarily done strictly by the Nazis 
they were done by the Ukrainians as well. And what was their motivation was, number one, was anti-Semitic. Number two, they had a material things because if, for example, uh, if you have a dog, a big grave, and you, you line up the shoes and your clothes before you're getting shot, they have a chance to pick those up to themselves. Mm-hmm. And they have a chance to, to take their properties as well. Because if you're shot, your house is going to somebody who proclaimed pro-Nazis or whatever. Yeah. Can you take me back to the day when everything changed, when, you, when your family had to leave where you were staying? Yeah. Um, we were farmers, I told you earlier, and we thought we knew our neighbors well. We were respected by our neighbors. We had excellent relationship with our neighbors. So we knew there was a war going on. And, for example, in September 1, uh, Hitler invaded Poland, September 1, 1939. So they're okay, so he invaded Poland, he already took Czechoslovakia, he took Austria. I said, what what does he need Romania for? So we thought maybe because we know our neighbors and we're going to be safe, people need to eat and farmers produce food. So, you know, we're not going to be touched. And that was a mistake. But looking back, it was a terrible mistake. I want to tell you this. My wife's father, also, her parents, grew up in the same little town that my parents were. And he has a better radar because he was not just in this little farm. He was a merchant buying wood and shipping it overseas. And he realized that the anti-Semitism is spread like a bad disease. He took his family and went to Chile. And nobody even knew what Chile was or where Chile was. It's almost like he had the uh, unique opportunity to hear the perspectives of all these different people. Yeah, he he was more in touch with the world. Right. It was outside the world. He was not with a little book in a synagogue. Yeah, when you're in a farm, you're kind of isolated. You're, you got your yeah. neighbors. You got your you, you worry community. about the, the, the cow is, is, is delivering now. Yeah. You, you're not worrying about, about the, what's the going on in Berlin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that doesn't matter. He was smart, and he took his family to Chile. That's where Ruth was born. Huh. His, her older sister, who still lives in Chile, was born in Romania, just like I was. She's about uh, about a year or two younger than me. So he took his family and left. Some people see the future and do something. Some people say, oh, it's not going to bother. Don't, don't worry about it. We're going to be all right, and so on. My family that made that mistake. But one day uh, somebody came. He had some, some kind of a deputy or something. You know, the Nazis, they used people from different nationalities to do their job as well. Not every Nazi came to the Jewish home. The Jewish homes were known by the local people. And when they see, they saw an opportunity, whether they were anti-Semitic or saw an economic opportunity of getting something, 
they volunteered to do the dirty work for the Nazis. And uh, so they uh, uh, knocked on the door. Somebody said, knocked on the door, and, and they said, you have to be at a train station at 5 o'clock. And this was maybe 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So here we are. Uh, I was six years old. My sister was about two and a half. And, and we took whatever we can in suitcases and walked to the train station, which is about four or five kilometers, maybe two, three miles away. We had to walk. And you had to carry my sister because she was too young to walk. Anyway, and that's how we, we were on a train, um, kind of cattle train. Compact, it's 60, 70 people inside. Well, yes. do, you, do you remember thinking what's going on? I know what, what was going on was terrible. The, 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 it was not enough air to breathe, and it was a terrible smell. It was October in 1941. Uh, I, I, we were like sardines. Do you remember? And every time I moved somewhere, there was, a, there was another body right next to me or in front of me. Or, I didn't even know whether I, my parents are around there. Do you remember how your parents responded to everything? Notice they, any expressions? They, they were thinking, I know that my father was thinking to to hide in an attic, but just like Anne Frank did. But Anne Frank hid in the attic, but she had the support system of a family resupplying them with food. We didn't have that. We didn't know if we can rely on anybody and if they because people are afraid to support you because if they found out they can be shot and there was tremendous fear uh, that, that these people the Romanians they didn't want to interfere they, they wouldn't they wouldn't save your life some people did risk their lives to save Jews and I have some survivors who speak at the Bremen Museum who were hidden in the, in the attic or hidden, and the parents were get taken to the camp, and they were hidden by the farmers uh, and supplied with food and so on. My father, uh, being a merchant, he didn't have that opportunity. And, and the Zimmer, my grandfather was too well known that he, he was afraid that he will be found out and didn't want to put the neighbors in, in harm's way. They could be executed. Do you remember being nervous at any point in that trip on the train about being separated from your parents? No, I wasn't really separate. I know they were around not far in that train, but I was I was fearful. I, I knew they were going somewhere, but nobody knew where. You know, I'll wait till the train stops. And if it stops, you know, there were half of the people were half dead already. And uh, they took them and threw them out, and you know the, it was run. The train was run as a steam locomotive, and a steam locomotive needs to resupply with with water and and coal or wood. So every time the train stops, so half of the people were, especially the older people, were half dead. They threw them in the lake, and and, and uh, we begged the. The soldiers, there was one soldier at the end of the train, and begged the soldiers to open the door to get some, some air in, and they wouldn't do it. Uh, and they said, you give me something of value, 
and they would open the door if you give them a watch or, or a ring or linen or something of value because money during the war sometimes is just a piece of paper. What, what happened when you arrived? Well, we, we arrived at the a, at a, at a river that separates kind of uh, uh, into uh, what is now called the country Moldova from Ukraine. And that, that river is called Dniester River. And that's why the other side is called Transnistria, like, like Transjordan, the other side of Jordan. And we had to cross that river. That's where the train stops, unloaded its humanity or what's left of it. And we had to cross the river. Well, there were no boats. There was no bridge to cross. And this is already late October, cold. The river is big. And we had to cross it. So the challenge was, how do you cross a river without, without, a, without boats or without a bridge over? Well, they had a system where there are forests all around. And they cut trees and they put the logs together, tie the logs together into a raft. And you stay on that raft. And at the other end of the raft is being pulled by a mule or horses. So uh, we crossed the river on a raft. From what I was told, that some, some people fell off the raft into the river and it was a, a fast stream and they were gone. So that's where the town called Mogilev. Uh, we were brought in, once you crossed the river, uh-huh. we were brought in to a warehouse. Every city has a warehouse. And the warehouse is nothing but empty space where you store furniture or equipment and so on to be moved somewhere else. Uh-huh. So that became a ghetto. Just okay? a giant warehouse full of people. Full of people. You have no facility, no running water, no heat, no medicine, nothing. It's just a plain warehouse, which is just a bunch of walls and, and nothing else. What did you sleep on? So we slept on the floor. We slept on blankets that we had with us, things like that. What was, so, a, what was a day like? Like, did you get woken up to do things? Well, the day like was, was how do we get food? In this warehouse, were you guarded by soldiers? No, it wasn't guarded by soldiers. We were under Romanian rule. To go back, I will tell you the history about Romania. They joined the the, the German Nazi party. Yeah. Yes, they did join. We were left there. What they were hoping for was they're not. They're gonna put us in that place. We're gonna starve out, get sick, and die of natural causes without them having to fire bullets or sent to crematorium. They didn't have the crematorium or the the death camp like the Nazis had a sophisticated system of killing machines. And the Romanians were primitive. Most of them couldn't read and write anyway. So So what so what do you that, guys do throughout the day? Try to hunt for food and stuff? Exactly. Yeah. But the food the way the way it worked when you have a fresh shipment of people, there there are villages all around. So you would go to the villages? No, we wouldn't go. We wouldn't. We didn't go to 
We wouldn't go, the villagers would come to us. They had bread, they had potatoes, they had food, all right? And so they would come and, and want to trade. There was a, a, a great deal of trade going on. For example, they will say, look, I like your shirt. I'll give you a, a, a half a bread for the shirt. And if you're hungry enough, you cannot eat the shirt, but you can eat the bread. Mm -hmm. So you would trade your, your, your linen, your watch, your rings, your jewelry, your valuables for food. And there was trade going on. How long did that last for? But not very long, because pretty soon you have very little to trade. Right. And, and you get weak from malnutrition, and um, you get sick, and a lot of uh, tuberculosis and uh, other sicknesses uh, start eating us, and losing lives, and so forth. But the sickness was also spreading into town, because they didn't... They did this ghetto, I can call it ghetto, it's a warehouse of people, that full of people. Yeah. This ghetto was not like big Warsaw ghetto, which was surrounded by barbed wires and dogs patrolling outside. You cannot get in or out except going through the uh, sewer tunnels. You can leave this ghetto. But if you leave... And they find out, like you, you're 29 years old. You don't want to be there. You want to escape in the forest or join the partisans and fight back and so on. They will find out that you left and your parents will be hanged. Okay? So now you have a moral dilemma. Do you save yourself and let your parents be, be hanged because you ran away? And they always put these difficulties for people to save themselves. So a soldier would come, oh, then the city started making noise because they were complaining to the Romanians, look, you bought these people here and uh, we're getting sick too. So they wanted to eliminate this ghetto. And uh, they, they did eliminate the ghetto. They took uh, so many... 15 families in this little town and 20 families in this little town and this little, and then we, we were assigned about 15 kilometers to the, this little town called Kopaigorod and that's where they put us in a barn with straw where in a the barn they, they had animals in that barn but they were gone the soldiers took the animals for food or, or transportation now we became the animals in the barn. So how much and time had passed? How old are you at this point? At this point, uh, it was about a year and a half later. I was about seven or eight. And your sister still with you? My sister uh, died about three months later. From once you got to the barn? Once we were in the barn, we were lying in the straw, infested with lice and human waste. And my father always woke up early in the morning. And one day I, 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 I said, Dad, wake up, wake up, wake up. And he wouldn't move. He was dead. A few months after we got to that barn, he was dead. And then the, whoever was still strong and could take out the dead bodies and bury them, 
not far from that barn, and the, the ground was ice cold, frozen, and uh, they, they did the best they could to dig, uh, dig the, uh, to bury these people, but they didn't have the tool, and they weren't strong enough to, to dig a big hole. So in all the animals, they smell human flesh, you know. In the spring, we would find human remains all over the forest. And uh, that's how my father died, and my and sister just, died about two, three months later. You and just woke up next to him, and he wasn't moving. He wasn't moving. I, just, I kicked him, and he wasn't moving. So I knew that it was, that, it was, that he dead. He's dead. Um, then you have kids like me, seven, eight, nine years old, ten years old, who lost one parent or both parents, and they were roaming the village. They were roaming all over the villages to look for food. How did your How did your mother uh, respond to that? Respond to that? To your father? She was She was weak. She She thought she'll be gone. She will be next. So. Uh, uh, she she was desperate. And what happened is that I told you these kids were roaming the villages looking for food in trash cans and all kinds of places. And the villagers said, we don't want these kids roaming around here. The Romanians, what they did is they established an orphanage for these kind of kids who lost one or both parents. And there's a lot of questions. Who established the orphanage? Why was the orphanage established? But I, I may answer some of it. I'm not 100% sure why they did it. In 1942 to 43, the winter of 42-43 was one of the worst winter that Russia has experienced. And Hitler was not a military genius. The highest he achieved was a corporal in World War One, He was sitting in a, somewhere in Berlin, and he surrounded himself, like most executives do today, with people who were, yes, sir, yes, sir, you're a genius, you're the greatest, you're the Führer. And whoever disagreed with him was either demoted or shot. So you don't, you want your job, you want to keep your job. And he sent these 18, 19-year-olds in the wilderness of Russia, landing Stalingrad, and Stalingrad, where they entered the city. And in St. Petersburg, which used to be called Leningrad, they surrounded the city for 900 days. They thought the, the city will surrender. There was no food. They were eating dead rats or wallpapers. They scratched the wallpapers and made soup out of it. In Moscow, they were 18 miles from Moscow, 18 kilometers, sorry. In Stalingrad, they get in. And they got in not knowing what kind of... The, the, the tanks had no room. The, the streets were too small. And you don't find... You don't fight in a city with tanks. Tanks are for the outside, for the artillery. You don't shoot people with tanks in the city. So they had a tremendous defeat. And that's where the war turned around, in this Stalingrad. When the Romanians, the Allies, 
saw that Stalingrad is being defended and the Nazis had a tremendous defeat, they started thinking, these people, and said, hey, we may be charged with being war criminals, but mm. we killed a lot of civilians. Let's do something positive. Let's create an orphanage. But the orphanage was also, I think, a job, a work for for Jews from from Romania proper and other properties because you always want to save the children mm-hmm. in a war. Even today, when you, when you see what's happening in Syria, you, you still want to save the children. They're they're innocent in this conflict, and so they. My mother saw the opportunity. Maybe I can survive by letting me go, and she let me go to an orphanage. She says, if, if I survive, I'll come and get you. But if I don't survive, do the best you can. So, And at, and at this point, your sister was gone? And it was my just sister you. was gone, my father was gone, my uncles, I had no way of knowing. My grandparents were in another camp, and I only had one aunt left somewhere in that territory. <laughs> we weren't sure where she was. So you stayed at the orphanage, and there it was uh, nicer conditions. You had a bed. Oh, yes. I, I had a bed to sleep on. I was kids with kids of my own age. Uh, I had one good meal a day. How old were you at this point? At this point, I was about eight. And eight, how long nine. were you there until you reunited with your mom? Well, in April of 1944, uh, a soldier came in and into this barn and said you're free to go home but don't 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 expect transportation from us because our trains are now loaded with supplies for the war effort but if you want to hang in on the roof then yes you you're welcome to do so my mother came picked me up we're going home and uh, we hanged in on the train and above us was the Luftwaffe which is a German Air Force. Had they dropped a bomb, I wouldn't be here talking to you. But he didn't drop a bomb. Maybe he ran out of ammunition. Maybe they thought the war was over anyway. We made it to our village, and we come to my grandfather's home, where I had good memories when I was younger, and there was some family living there. That you didn't know? No, we didn't know. She came out, a lady came out, and she says, oh, we're surprised that you survived. We didn't know. See, now a new regime came called communist regime, and if you sign here and you become a communist, you get land, you get a house, a new regime. Did you guys get And she took back? over the house. She took over the house. So did you get it back, or did you have to? No, we didn't get anything back. We, we, my mother, my mother is smart. She just said to this lady, "I want to go in the attic." And sure enough, she came back in the attic with a shoebox, and the shoebox she had letters from her father, uh, brother-in-law, and sister-in-law. See, I told you, I have an uncle and an aunt that came here from my father's side, a brother and sister of my father. Here in America? To America in 1920s. 
and she had the address. I still remember it, 154 Allen Street, New York, New York. I didn't understand why New York is spelled twice, but uh, no. <laughs> and we wrote to them, send us food fast. And sure enough, they, they send us packages of food, came in about two, three weeks later. Where did they send it to? They send it to, to the place. We were taken in by a neighbor okay. that knew us and, and, and knew us very well. And so she says, you know what? You and your son, you have a room to stay with us because our house was gone. Not only was the house gone, but they cut up the property and gave it to the peasants who joined the communist, the communist party or whatever it was. So how long did you stay at the, what was the next move for you and your mom? Well, the, the next move was there is no future here. They took our property, they killed our family, we want to get out. So now that we have an address in, in America, we applied to go to the United States. And also, a new country came right after the war called Israel in 1948. So we applied to both places to go. And we waited, and now I found out why, we waited five years till two envelopes came. And one says that you can go to Israel, and one says that you can go to the United States. To go to the United States was dangerous. Not only was it dangerous because they started a cold war. The United States and, and Soviet Union didn't like each other after the war. Mm. And each one has its own agenda. Right. And it wasn't a, uh, and if what? you, if you want to go to the United States means you are an imperialist spy. Right. So it wasn't safe. Uh, to go to Israel was a lot safer, a lot shorter. And the passage was free. I don't know who paid for the passage, but I think it's the Jews in America felt sorry for the survivors, remnant, let them go to Israel. And so you went? I went to Israel with my mother. You were 13, 13, right, at your bar mitzvah? I was, I, was, uh, I was 13, yeah, in 48. I was 13 in 48, in May of 48, my mother, and that we went to a small town in, in Romania. Uh, we, she gathered about 10 men to have a bar mitzvah for me. And uh, she baked the cake and that was it. <laughs> but they didn't pay much attention because it was Israel was born at that time. They were more interested in whether this, this state will come into being or not. And so the excitement was not my bar mitzvah, the excitement was the birth of the, a new country called Israel. And that's where we wanted to go. So we went, and the rest is history. Well, you have questions, I'll tell you what about. Yeah, but you, about. you joined the military when you were there. Well, no. First, I was, I was already 16 years old when I was in Israel. And we were allowed, you see, five years I was in Romania. I went to school. I went through all this propaganda. Uh, so, so in 1951, I told you we got an permit to go to Israel. Yeah. So we got we we went to Israel and I was a teenager. I didn't speak the language. Uh, I haven't been to school much. I started school about 8 or 9 years old. So uh, 
they didn't know what to do with us. There were lots of kids like us, come from all over the world. So they put us in a kibbutz. In a kibbutz, Nitzanim, which you can find on the map, uh, you, 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 we were a group of 36 boys and girls, all of them from Romania except for one who came from Egypt. And he spoke more, better Romanian than we did <laughs> after a while. So half a day we would work on the kibbutz, milk the cows, collect the eggs, pick oranges, do whatever is necessary with, with the adult kibbutz. The other half a day we would study uh, math, uh, Hebrew, Bible, uh, literature, chemistry, whatever high school is being taught and whatever in school being taught. What, what were you doing for fun? For fun, we had tremendous a lot of fun. Yeah, of course, we were we were all in about the same age. We were singing, we were dancing, we we had we produced a play, which we presented to other for other kibbutzim, and we made enough money in that play that we could take a trip for the first time to Jerusalem in 1951, 52, I think it was. We went to Jerusalem to visit. We've never been to Jerusalem, you know. And Jerusalem at that time was a divided city. It was uh, the Jordan controlled one side and Israel controlled the other side. So no, you, you walked around and now all of a sudden you see a wall and, and a Jordanian soldiers with, with a rifle. And then we were, in, in, we were like kibbutznik. You know how people dress in kibbutz? They have shorts and T-shirts. Yeah. You know, and uh, it was on the Shabbat, and some of these Orthodox kids who came out and called us all kinds of names and threw stones at us because we were not like them. And I asked uh, my my teacher, the counselor, I says, "Who are these people?" He says, "Oh, forget about them. They are a remnant from 18th century Poland." <laughs> Yeah, they're still there, by the way. <laughs> they are, they are growing faster than I do. Yeah. Yes. So they will disappear. They'll become Israelis and you know macho guys like we. Who knows? You see know. what's happening. You you you're a witness. You're a witness. And so, um, my mother went and married my uncle, which is according to Jewish law. And my uncle lived in Orlando. Uh, according to Jewish law, when you're according to Jewish law, if if your father dies and he has a brother, so your husband dies. I mean, the husband dies, the husband dies, and there is a a brother who's not married. He's supposed to marry the widow. And that's what uh, happened. No, that's yeah, that's what happened. Did you? Well, he was a he was a widower. Yeah, but. It just so happened it was a marriage of convenience, that's all. Did she move to Florida? She moved to Florida about a year or two. Well, I, after the kibbutz, I went to the military. Yeah. And after I finished my military in two and a half years, she, she kept writing to me, come on over, come on over. I was plenty, very happy in Israel, but she insisted I come, and if you have a mother who saved your life and gave your life, you listen. Mm. And... I came over and I came to Orlando in 56 and started learning English. 
uh, went to junior college, and then after two years, I was accepted at the University of Florida, and then graduated in 1960 from Gainesville, University of Florida, and then went to work in Tampa, and then I went to Syracuse, New York, to graduate school, where I met Ruth. She was in another university. She was at Ball State University, and I met her. How'd you meet her? Good question. She got a Fulbright scholarship to come to this country to study. She, he, she had two, two scholarships, one to come to this country as a Fulbright. Now, I don't know if you know the history of this. Fulbright was a senator from Arkansas. And instead, instead of giving foreign aid, which ends up in pockets of some people they don't deserve, he, he established something better. He would bring in students from developing countries, from South America, from Asia, from wherever, and let them become scientists, teachers, um, and go back to their country, or, or doctors, and go back to their country and do good for their country instead of giving them just plain money, foreign aid. And Ruth was lucky enough to get one of those scholarships hmm. to come to this country to study, by the way, counseling. And she went to Ball State University for graduate school. She got a, she has a degree from University of Chile. So she got a, a Fulbright scholarship to get graduate work at Ball State University, which is in Indiana. Well, her mother in Chile went to visit sisters in, in Israel. And there she met my uncle and says, oh, your daughter is going to United States. I have a sister living in Orlando, Florida. Oh, so my mother, I was dating a girl from Tampa for some time, and my mother wrote to me, we have some kind of a, a young lady that is here to study that came from our town in Romania. I said, okay, well, be nice to her. Invite her over for during Christmas vacation. And maybe we get to know each other. Well, she came in 1965 for Christmas vacation. And we met. And uh, I had all my social life in Tampa. Well, that's where I had my friends, my girlfriend. I said, you know what? You come with me, and we're going to celebrate New Year's. This is Christmas, New Year's in Tampa. Well, we went to Tampa, and uh, I broke up with my girlfriend. And I came back, and we found out that we have a lot in common. And so, uh, well, she had another year left to study. So in the, in the summer of uh, no, let's see, in in sixty end of sixty five, summer of sixty five, she decided we either get married or I go back to Chile. I said well, I was in the cafeteria and I had to make a quick decision. <laughs> <laughs> so I said we'll get married, and we got married even though her chances of staying in this country were less than two percent. 
Because when you get a Fulbright scholarship, they don't want you to be a doctor here or an engineer here. They want you to go back to your country and do good for your country. Right. We have enough doctors and engineers here. So one thing led to another. We wrote letters to our senator and to our representative, and I even had to go to, to the senator in, of Florida in Washington, and we asked, and he picked up uh, Matters was his name. Uh, he picked up the telephone and his desk called the State Department, and he says, your chances have improved 50%. So <laughs> you can stay in this country, have a 50% chance to stay in this country. So, you know, we got married in, in June of 66. So last year we were, we were 50 years married, and she had to go to Buffalo. Buffalo is not terribly far from Syracuse, and she came in as an immigrant. And by that time she was already pregnant with Ronit. Hmm. who was born in 67, exactly a year after we got married. And here we are. What, what did you do for, uh, for work uh, while you were raising your oh, family? Uh, well, I told you I was in graduate school in Syracuse. They gave me uh, assistantship. I, I was very good with the Russian language. And I thought because the animosity of Soviet Union in, in America, Sputnik and all that, they will need Russian language experts. I was mistaken. They don't. <laughs> so I got the scholarship in Syracuse to get a degree in master's in, in Russian language and literature. And I, I taught some Hebrew on the side, some synagogue in Syracuse. That taught, uh, and, and then I got a, a full-time job to be educational director in Chattanooga, to be educational director there for a conservative synagogue, B'nai Zion. After 67, yeah, we, we went there in 68. How long were you in Chattanooga for? Uh, three years. Three years? What yeah. happened next? Uh, in Chattanooga, they ran out of money. So they could afford only ha part-time. We cannot survive on part-time work. And at that time, for lucky, I don't know how, we got a, a, a notice. Somebody sent us a notice. They were looking for an educational director at, in Atlanta for a new synagogue that was created in 68, and that's called, that synagogue is called uh, Temple Sinai. And I was the first full-time educator in Temple Sinai. I came in 1970 and was hired, and uh, was very happy here. Uh, we, we created a, a dynamic school. I had 500 students, 33 teachers, I was the educational director for 12 years. And Did then, uh, Ronit go to school there? Yeah, she went to, but she went to Hebrew Academy. I, I, I wanted her to get a good education, so she went to the Hebrew Academy. And then she went to, after Hebrew Academy, went on only up to the eighth grade. When was uh, Naomi born? Naomi was born in 69, yeah. And how, what was... Uh, Naomi was born in Chattanooga. Chattanooga. See, yeah, I was still in Chattanooga. And she was born with a condition, right? 
We didn't know about this condition, but uh, uh, she wouldn't eat. Uh, she had uh, all kinds of problems eating or swallowing, or and we didn't know. The doctor didn't know what it was. They, they finally sent us to Emory. Uh, and Emory already had experience with another kid with similar condition called dysautonomia, familial dysautonomia. It strikes Ashkenazi Jews, uh, children that normally uh, now they 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 survive more years, but still most of them die in the teenage years. How did you notice something was wrong? She wasn't eating. She, she wasn't eating. Was As getting cold. She was uh, vomiting. She was aspirating the the, the food. And, okay, and and she didn't. We didn't notice when she cries, she had no tears. The familial dysautonomia is, you know, there are certain things in your body that is functioning automatic by the automatic nervous system. Like if you run, your heart starts beating faster. Or you you sweat. feel hot and cold. Yeah, and you sweat. Yeah, automatically. You... If you, she doesn't feel hot and cold. She may go out like this in zero weather. She, she doesn't feel hot and cold. She doesn't have tears. She doesn't have uh, certain things that normal people have to protect themselves. Right. And this was so a, a real, a real problem. How old was she when you figured out when she was? She was. Uh, uh, I think about. I think you need to ask Ruth, but I think she was about several months when the doctor finally decided. I don't know what the problem is. They would come, we would come with her f with a cold. So you give this medication. This uh, Two weeks later, she'll have the same cold. Resistance was low. How, how was it uh, taking care of her at the earlier ages? Who was taking care of her? No, how, how was it? To well, it was very, very distressing. Right. Uh, for the mother especially, and for me too. And for Ronit, because we had to, to run to hospitals, run to the doctors, and um, unfortunately, Ronit had to be on her own for a, for a long period of times. Yes, till we found out in Emory what the problem was. Then you have an office in New York that deals with all there are all over the world. There may be two or three hundred kids with this condition. Most of them are either New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, and Israel. This is it. Here, there was one other kid that had it. And we became good friends with that family. So when I had an offer of a job here, I was, I was very happy because that means Naomi could get better care by people who know how to deal with this condition. How do you deal with it? Well, you deal with it, what, whatever, it, whatever, if you have a cold, you, you get the medicine for the cold. And you have, uh, they had finally to have a tubulation, which means she, the doctor said, the biggest problem is that you drink, yes, and there has to go, her drink or her food will sometimes go into the lungs. And that causes pneumonia. That causes all kinds of 
the, the lungs has to be clear. It cannot have any of the foods and stuff like that. So she had a tube that you, all the liquid came through here. She finally ate all the foods through here. In other words, her, her lungs were half shot because of that. So she no longer could eat by mouth, you know. And uh, you have a mother totally dedicated her, trying to save her, and she managed to keep her alive for 46 years, which is unheard of. And we did everything we could to, to keep her alive. And about a year ago, she went out with Barbaro uh, for dinner. It was, I don't know what, it was birthday or something. And he already knew how to, what to do to revive her. You know, give, we always had an oxygen tank to keep the lungs, have enough oxygen. She would sleep with oxygen machine. And, uh, and they went, uh, it was December 19, they went, uh, Barbara's birthday is December 15, they went out to eat in a nearby restaurant where they live, and, and she fell, you know, passed out. This is a typical thing, she passed out. It was typical passed that that would happen? All the time, passed out. And sometimes you revive her, and you do the best you can, sometimes... People, 911 would come. This time the 911 came and and they couldn't. They couldn't revive her. She went very peacefully. Instead of, you know, being in a hospital with tubes and, and machines and so on, I'm grateful we didn't have to go through that. But she was there at Emory. It took her, by the time she was there, she, were, she was dead. That was... Uh, that was last year. Oh no! Wait a minute. No, a a, a year. And a, a, it was in 2015. Uh, last last December was one year that she died. Yeah. And uh, this was a big big um, big blow for her. She suffered a great deal. She she's uh, cried for almost Ruth? every day. Ruth. Yeah. For her, because they were very, 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 very closely attached. She practically kept her alive for all these years, supplying with food. She knew the medicine. She knew what she needed. She looked at her. She already knew what what What's needs to be done. Right. What was troubling? Oh man. I wonder what it was like for Naomi. She was very happy. She was, she loved her husband. I've never seen a couple more in love than Barbara and Naomi. If she would walk and he wasn't two feet right behind her, she was looking back and see, they, they loved each other. I feel, I personally don't have a close relationship with Barbara, but I know that he suffers a great deal now, the loneliness, must be devastating to him. Because this, this, this couple truly, truly loved each other. Very, very much. Like, I've never seen anything like it. I miss her too. But I am glad that she lived as long as she has and that she didn't suffer because she spent many months 
at Emory University Hospital. They knew her there. She was practically living half of her life there. And, and that was not easy to be in a hospital. And, and doctors are not terribly sure what to do next. I feel sorry for, you know, when you have a child with this special condition, you have to do whatever you can to keep them alive, to keep them going. But Naomi, look, she went with her sister to Riverwood, to high school. I never thought she's going to graduate high school. She went to Oglethorpe, graduated from Oglethorpe, and she went to Emory Law School and took the bar exam the same day Ronit and Matt took and passed it the same way as they did. And she worked for, I don't know how many years, 11, 12 years for Georgia Advocacy for the Handicapped, she worked for the people who are in nursing homes to get them out of there. Uh, she passed certain certain laws benefiting. Um, you, you talked to Ruth about it. She knows more about it yeah, than I'll I do. I'll talk to her. I'll talk to her next. Uh, you did? Yeah, she knows more about the disease and about Naomi a lot more than I do. I, I enjoy talking to you. I feel comfortable talking to you. Uh, I think that in, in, in one hand, I, I'm looking the past and I'm glad I'm here now. I enjoy my life. I'm satisfied. Um, I regret for my wife uh, losing. I regret not having more children. Why do you regret not having more children? Because once we had this, once we had Naomi, our chances of having another one like that, I don't think we would be surviving. Enough is taking its toll with one child. If I have another one like this, so we we de we decided not to have children anymore. But, but you wish because it, because you wish your it. chances of now they have testing. That's why Matt and Ronit they tested before they had children that they not carriers of this. You have a gene, and my wife has a gene. Our chances are 50-50 when we have another child right. with this condition. And I don't think we, we could make it. We decided not to. This is kind of a weird question. But I know that when I'm by myself, when I'm driving by myself or going to places by myself, my thoughts can go all over the place, either into my past, into my future, or into the present moment. I'm wondering for you, when you're alone and when you're reflecting about who you are and where and where we are, uh, where does your mind go? Um, I I keep very busy. Okay, I'm 82 years old. I am running a business. I have to take care of the house. I enjoy reading. I enjoy playing tennis. My mind is. Um, I love traveling, most of all, and I regret not being able to do more of traveling. I'm financially well. I, I look back and I say, I'm very pleased. I'm very satisfied with my life. I, I'd like to have more friends. I got one good friend that I had lunch with recently. I like to have more friends, but I also consider myself different most people grew up in Chicago or Los Angeles or they went to high school and they 
you know, college bodies and this and that. I don't have that. Because when I was in college in Florida or Syracuse, most people were much younger than me. Yeah. I was I was trying to, you know, I'm very grateful and very happy, and I hope you too. I've been married 50 years. I love my wife. I love her to death. And we're very happy together. And uh, I love my daughter, Ronit. She's achieved a great deal. I, I'm crazy about the grandchildren. So I, I am very grateful to what I I have achieved with what I have, what I see around me. I like to see the my grandkids uh, more often than I do, but that's every grandparent's wish. I look at myself content. I don't need to conquer Everest anymore. I don't have tremendous goals. I want a satisfied life. To me, food is important because I know what hunger means. And I enjoy speaking to to soldiers, to college students, to high school students, elementary school students. I play my accordion, which not very often. The Jewish music, I love Jewish music. Uh, I love a good football game. Uh, I have whatever I need. I'm very, 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 very satisfied. I'm not thinking of my thoughts or what this. I would like to visit my cousin, I got one cousin, it's the real relative left from, my mother was one out of seven, and this is the only oh, cousin I have. The community respects me. I, I enjoy volunteering, playing the accordion to the Epstein School. I speak at the Bremen, I play tennis, I watch the news. Every day I watch the news, 6.30 to, to 7. No, 6 to 7, it's automatic. So let's close out I'm, then. I, I'm not thinking big, big thoughts. You're, you're, you are you're... 29. You have to achieve something. I, <laughs> I, I already, I'm past that. Yeah. I'm grateful for every day I get for my life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I am too. I just, I, I but for me, staying grateful for when I'm alone, I think about all sorts of stuff. And I don't know, I just want, I, I'm, I'm, I want to. I think I, this was great. I t I, t I tell you what I think for you. I would think you should get married and have a, a good marriage like I do. You will be very, very, very happy. But you found you found a, the perfect person for you. I was lucky. I can't just jump into anything. I got to know it's right. How'd you know it was right? It felt right. It's, it's an, there is no categories, you know. It's not like your computer. You can fix it by technology. It's got to feel right. Well, sometimes you hit and miss. Look, your parents, we're not on the mic, are we? Yeah, we are. We are? But you can say whatever you want. This is, but this is just Look, yours. Look, Sid and uh, Sherry, they thought they were in love, right? They thought they were, yeah. And then they separate, and they were still in love. I tell the marriage continues. Yeah. But if you don't, you know, you have to... Okay, I'm not good at pursuing many goals. I'm pursuing one goal. Okay. I wasn't pursuing this goal. I had a girlfriend in Tampa I was very happy with. I was not... I wouldn't consider myself in love. But when I met Ruth, 
we we were very good friends. We we laughed. We we knew Yiddish words. We so on. I fell in love during the marriage because I found a lot in common with her. We like the same food, the same music, the same literature. She's well educated. She's fun to be with. Yeah, I, I just I just gotta just keep following my intuition, my gut. Are you dating? Yeah, but if I'm honest with you, I don't feel that with the girl I'm dating. You know. Then don't waste her time. Well, but it's still very young. Yeah. I would like you to to marry a Jewish a Jewish girl. Yeah. And there 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 are many young girls that I think would love to have a good-looking fellow like you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, let's But you have to get into that circle. Don't stay outside. Get inside the circle and and work at it. Yeah. Just like you do other things. Yeah, I guess but, I guess part of the I guess you're kind of right when you talk about my age needing to feel like I need to conquer the world or c- accomplish something. I am I I am taking day by day, hour by hour. Let's let's close out. You got some? Yeah, let's close. Out. I got somebody's coming, yeah. but I I love talking to you. Yeah, I appreciate. I feel it. very comfortable talking to you. Uh, we're distantly related. Yeah, but but. I feel close to you. I I would like you to see. I would love to see you very happy. I'm sure your parents would love to. By the way, who? What is your brother doing? He's working for the for my father for the company. Oh really? Yeah. What's his name again? Alexander Alex. Al. Alex. Yeah. Alex. That's yeah. right. Re- he's redheaded. He's married. He's redheaded. We look almost the same. He is married, uh, and he lives out by the warehouse. He's got a place with his wife. So. Is he happy? Yeah, yeah, he's uh, he's happy. Uh, I have a hard time. I guess for me, happiness is a different thing. The, the stuff like this makes me happy. You know? Really? Yeah, yeah. I love I love hearing the stories and the perspectives and the f- emotions and the feelings. That's what like that's what I really like. I like uh, truth, and I think there's nothing more uh, truthful than personal experience. And we live in a world where there's so much things seeking our attention or all these issues that, you know, they want us to, you know, pay attention to. But I think nothing's more important than, a, than our very own perspectives and experiences. Uh, that's why I want to do this is I want to capture and, and learn from people that have been there, lived that and done it. Because I think in the expression of, of, of describing where we've been or how we feel or what we think, I think that there's a... The feelings get transferred, and those are this more is, important. You know, it's two hours went by like nothing for me. Yeah. But mostly I, uh, the, 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 the two biggest experiences in Jewish life in 20th century was the Holocaust in Israel. And I experienced both of them from within. And yep. that's why I, I don't mind talking about it. I, I think for historical perspective... I can tell kids, yes, I went through this. I lived, I did sleep in straw with lice and human waste all around me. And if I can survive, you can survive. All right, this is what I want to do to close out because that's great. That's perfect. 
Can you play some accordion? Just a few seconds. No, no, because this lady is coming uh, next time when you come. You can't along. even do just a quick diddly, real quick, like thirty seconds, just to record 30 second. it. Thirty seconds. I haven't played in six months. Let's let's get it. Yeah, let's get it. Just a quick recording. another thing to show you there's some uh, I, I speak a lot of places so they did a, a video I haven't played in six months so I'm a little rusty but I want to show you something Adam before we go all right 